This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 20th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Lizzie Wade talks about the soon-to-open Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Can it recover from early accusations of forgeries and illicitly obtained artifacts? And Catherine Matisik is here to talk about stories from our online news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. First up, we have a story on the latest LIGO find. Um, I don't even know where to start with this one. I mean, sometimes big things happen in science. It's not every day, but when it does, it makes me really happy. It kind of clears away some of the blues from other areas of my life. To put it simply... My favorite fact about this one, this big science find, is that many, many papers were tied to this event and authored altogether by about 4,500 astronomers. That's, according to our news writer, one-third of right. all the astronomers when, in the world. When I saw that, I thought it was a typo. And yeah. then I went back and was like, oh, my. Yeah, it's just amazing. So, okay, Catherine, Sarah gushing over. What event did LIGO observe? Did all of these people work together to observe? Okay, so now that your gushing is over, does that mean I can take over? <laughs> yes, sure. Gush right. away. Excellent. So um, LIGO's two observatories and its European counterpart in Pisa, Italy, detected the merger of two super-dense neutron stars, each larger than our own sun. You might remember that LIGO's previous detections of gravitational waves, four in total, were all from the merger of black holes. Those signals that came through lasted only seconds. But this new signal lasted 100 seconds and rippled in at extraordinarily fast frequencies. Okay. The big news, besides observing something other than black holes colliding or merging, is that there were multiple observations confirming LIGO's find and adding so many more dimensions. Who else got to look at this? So the fantastic thing about this event, and now I'm the one gushing, <laughs> um, is that it could be observed by conventional telescopes. Two seconds after the gravitational signal, NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which orbits 350 miles above the Earth, picked up a blast of high-energy photons called a gamma ray burst. 
On the ground, teams of astronomers train their telescopes to the patch of the sky that observatories identified as the source of the signal, a spot in the constellation Hydra. Ten hours and 52 minutes later, a team from the University of California, Santa Cruz, spotted a bright red dot in the periphery of galaxy NGC 4993, (laughs) and I did have to read that, that slowly faded over the course of a couple days from bright blue to red. And two weeks later, the source began to emit X-rays and radio waves that were picked up by other scopes. In the end, more than 70 observatories around the world studied the event. One thing that really struck me about this is that LIGO, especially the first observation, there really isn't a way, another way to detect this kind of phenomenon, the merging of black holes. But this one, not only, I mean, LIGO is measuring such a tiny, tiny little variation in gravitation. So this is just spectacular. What what did they find looking through all this data coming on these different instruments? So I think that uh, the thing we talked about earlier was this kilonova. Is mm-hmm. that right? So I'll start with that. Yeah. Um, I wish I could say I knew about this before. This is a great term. It, it's is- it's an excellent term. I mean, you know, I, I'm, it just sounds like a bad guy. I, I would say Killanova, but yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, what's really interesting is that until now, this was an object in theory alone. The theory went that as two neutron stars swirl together and rip each other apart, they expel neutron-rich atomic nuclei, forming a shroud of matter. The nuclei then gobble up neutrons in rapid succession and quickly change their chemical identities through radioactive decay. That process makes the shroud glow for days. It's light reddened by the heavy elements that soak up blue wavelengths. For a brief period, this kilonova kilonova, (laughs) shines thousands of times brighter than an ordinary nova. Um, And so an observation of a kilonova is just giving us, again, a treasure trove of information. What did did we find in there? Nice. I like your treasure trove term. (laughs) Since you've already read the stories and made a very fine video that our listeners can watch on sciencemag.org slash news, you're well aware that the heavy elements produced in a kilonova include silver, gold, and platinum. Mm Nuclear physicists long thought those elements were generated in the process, but they didn't have any proof. Now we at least know that some, and quite possibly all, of the elements heavier than iron are generated in these neutron star death spirals. All right. Well, anything else we should talk about before we move on to the next story? Um, Right now, I'm going to say just go to our site and read the story that was written by our incredible physics writer, Adrian Cho. Uh, He is really the expert on this and does a wonderful job of, of distilling the rest of the findings. Now we have a story on cooperating wolves, my guess would be, if asked, and before I read the story, which would get along better, wolves or dogs would be dogs. But new research shows cooperation is just more complicated than that. What do we mean by cooperation in this context, Catherine? It's all about the context, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, we're talking about animals working together to achieve a common goal. The dogs and wolves that were being studied had to figure out how to get a bit of food out of a tray that was attached to two ropes. The catch, of course, was that the dog and wolf teams could get the food 
only if one of them pulled on each rope at the same time. Hmm. Okay, and this was all conducted at a facility where they raised these animals in a special way? That's right. The Wolf Science Center is a huge sanctuary in Austria that opened in 2008. I sort of wish Dave were here. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure he visited it when he was writing his book on the history of dogs and cats. Mm Anyway, scientists at the center study semi-wild timber wolves and dogs. I say semi-wild because all the animals interact with human caretakers who, as you mentioned, hand-rear the wolf pups when they're just 10 days old. But that doesn't mean the wolves are domesticated, quite the opposite. In fact, one of the fun things that I learned is that the researchers make sure they never play chase with the wolf cubs in case their instincts kick in and things take a turn for the worse. But anyway, from the age of five months, the wolf pups join packs of two to three wolves that roam the reserve. Right now, there are seven packs in all. Fifteen dogs, free-ranging canines that form their own social group, also have the run of the place. That allows scientists to compare the behavior of the wolves and dogs, who are domesticated but live in nearly identical conditions. So here we have a setting and here we have the test administered to these two groups of semi-feral canines, I guess. And what they saw was a difference in, in how often they succeeded in this cooperative task. What, what were the numbers like? Do you want to take a guess? I know the answer. Oh, all right. All right. So it wouldn't be a guess. But I will tell our listeners that of 416 tests, and these are tests that are run with wolf teams and with dog teams, 416 for each, the dog succeeded just two times. (laughs) But the wolves, they solved the puzzle a hundred times. Oh, not bad. I guess they were proving who is top dog. <laughs> oh, gosh. So the theory here, it's trying to say that they're cooperating, but how do we know they're not just fighting or, you know, rushing the food dish and not paying attention to what the other one is doing? So what's interesting is the explanation the researchers gave for the results. Dogs have a hierarchy, and they approach the food dish one at a time in accord with whoever was at the top of that hierarchy. Um, Wolves also have this sort of social situation, but they didn't wait their turn. Instead, they all dove in at once. And that, says the researchers, allowed them to coordinate their actions and figure out the trick. And here, I'm going to be a little unfair and turn your question around on you. Oh, no. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying it's unfair is because I'm going to bring humans into the mix. In a big organization, you know, think at the government level or in a major company, how can you tell when people are cooperating, competing, or engaging in some combination of both at once? Oh, so when they all run at the food buffet and just start eating at the same time, well, they're cooperating? Well, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say that that may not be the best analogy. But, but the idea is that the wolves, by all acting at the same time, even though they weren't initially coordinating, they were more likely to pull the rope together and discover that teamwork was the secret to their success. Avoiding conflict, like the dogs, may make it harder to solve these kinds of problems. That doesn't mean they aren't good team players, but the researchers suggest that their propensity to cooperate has, over time, shifted from other animals to us humans. 
Last up, we have a story on ancient volcanoes and ancient Egypt. This is one of my favorite kinds of studies, actually. You take a natural phenomena, and then you find evidence for it from the past, and then you link it with a big historical event. It's just It can really give you great insights into history that we haven't seen before. So in this case, it's volcanoes in ancient Egypt. But as far as I know, there aren't any volcanoes in Egypt. How do they relate to each other? That was actually one of my questions when I was editing this piece. (laughs) It turns out that we're talking about massive eruptions, so big that they send plumes of sulfur dioxide into the sky in a global sun-blocking layer. That can, among other things, briefly lower global temperature and even change precipitation patterns. Looking at eruptions, some from known volcanoes in Alaska and Iceland, and others known only by their sulfur deposits and ice cores in Greenland and and Antarctica, the scientists compared them to the world's oldest record of river flow, which chronicles high water marks in the Nile from the year 622 to 1902. They found out that the flood levels in the Nile were affected by this kind of volcanic activity. Wow. So they know big volcano means you're not going to see as much flooding in the Nile, which is bad news no matter when you live in Egypt, right? It's bad news because floods, uh, annual floods, are what brings the water that's necessary for the next year's harvest, along with all sorts of nutrients and sediments that are good for crops. And so if you have a water level that's much lower than normal, that means that you have some degree of famine. Okay, so the researchers who made this connection between volcanoes, big volcano eruptions, and the level of flooding on the Nile looked all the way back at 305 BCE to 30 BCE Egypt, and they did climate simulations of this time. What? Why did they pick this time, and what did they see when they did those simulations? One of the reasons they picked this time was precisely because there weren't written records that attested to the flooding that we were talking about earlier. And so what they wanted to do is see if they could correlate this climate modeling with the historic record. Because even though we don't have a record of the actual floods, we do know from everything from tax records to poems to uh, supplications that were written to the pharaohs. Uh, You know, we know from these things when certain events took place like crop failure, famine, and even rioting that resulted in part because of these natural events. Okay. So we knew historically it was a little bit of a rough period of time for Egypt. What evidence uh, do we have that there were volcano eruptions during that time? So again, uh, we're looking at uh, deposits and ice cores. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that was one critique of the study, that that was really the only physical evidence that they looked at in addition to the historic evidence. Um, there was one outside researcher who said uh, that the study would actually be strengthened if the researchers had looked at other evidence from tree rings. One thing I wanted to kind of loop back to was what was going on in Egypt at this period of time. It wasn't just, uh uh-oh, there's some famines. A lot of other things were happening. Right. At the time, 
it was a period in which Egypt was actually ruled in part by uh, Greek overlords. And so you had this kind of underlying simmering tension between the people who were ruling and the people who were being ruled. And so there were already, uh, you know, there was already kind of this foment and any event like a crop failure or famine did end up having spillover consequences politically. I think uh, one of the best things that one of the uh, researchers said about this, you know, because they were very careful to point out the fact that the volcanoes did not trigger these social events, but that they contributed to them. This researcher said, many people think that history unfolds on a blank chessboard and that the environment is not a factor. But of course, it is. All right. Okay, Catherine, what else is on the site this week? We have a beautiful package on all things spider. Yes. And we also have a story on an artificial intelligence, a new one, that is much more powerful than the one that last year beat the world's champion Go player. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story about researchers fighting for open access in Germany and another on the United States' recent decision to pull out of UNESCO. Okay. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matasek is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next month, the Museum of the Bible will open near the U.S.'s National Mall. The $500 million museum is home to thousands of artifacts relating to the Bible. But scholars have many questions about those artifacts, where they come from, and if some are even real. Lizzie Wade visited the museum ahead of its opening to look at the scholarly side of this place. Welcome, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So what are the goals of a place like this, a museum of the Bible, and are there similar facilities elsewhere? Yeah, so there are a couple of, so the goal, I should start with the goal. The goal is, um, it's changed a little bit over the years, basically because the museum is funded by the Green family who own the craft store chain Hobby Lobby, and they're very, very wealthy. I first heard of the Greens, and I think many people first heard of the Greens, when they challenged the Affordable Care Act's birth control mandate in the Supreme Court, and that was the requirement that employers provide health insurance plans that provide a birth control. And the Greens felt that that was a challenge to their religious beliefs. They're evangelical Christians, and they didn't want to have to comply with that requirement. They are kind of well-known in religious spheres and also now secular spheres as evangelical activists, basically. And they're clearly very invested in the Bible and spreading what they feel is its message. So that's the goal of the museum? Well, the goal of the museum has changed a little bit since it began, which is part of the story. At the beginning, when this museum, when the Museum of the Bible was founded as a nonprofit, separate from Hobby Lobby, the goal was something like to prove the reliability and accuracy of the Bible. That was in the nonprofit filings, which got scholars kind of freaked out (laughs) because the thought of using kind of archaeology or ancient artifacts to prove beliefs such as the Bible accurately records historical events or the Bible hasn't changed over time, neither of which scholars would feel is true, using artifacts and archaeology and scholarly material to support those claims was was troubling to them. That 
a goal has since been revised. Now the museum's goal, it's, you know, explicitly non-sectarian and it's more about inviting everyone who's interested to engage with the Bible. The religious overtones have been significantly toned down since the beginning, but the initial mission as stated in the IRS filings left a lot of people sort of shaken up. And is this something that's been done before? Are there other museums dedicated to this kind of thing? One comparison that came up in a lot of my interviews was the Bible Lands Museum, which is in Israel. It's a private museum, a private collection, antiquities that were bought on the market rather than came from archaeological digs. So there, there's a couple other places like this, but the Greens have, they're incredibly rich and they've poured a ton of resources into this museum. So I think that this is by far like the most, the most significant project of its kind. Getting back to antiquities and archaeological evidence that you mentioned, how scientific is this new museum? How much scholarship and analysis went into assembling this collection? What did you find out when you visited and talked to the people involved? So in the beginning, kind of around 2010, 2011, there wasn't much scholarly involvement, neither in the collections nor in how the objects were treated after they were bought. But in the last two years, the museum has really tried to improve in this area, and they've brought a lot of scholars in to consult on their exhibits. So this ranges from archaeologists to people who study the texts of different versions of the Bible itself. So they have spent a lot of time running by, running their exhibit texts and displays and ideas by very renowned scholars in the field. And one of my questions was, you know, how much have they taken that advice into account? How much can you see the scholarly influence? How much has it really changed what the museum's mm-hmm. doing? Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the claims that scholars were making that freaked people out about this collection. You know, there are concerns about provenance, where an item was found and how it actually came to belong to the museum. What are some of the questions there? Sure. People may have heard of this because of a case that was settled this summer. Hobby Lobby settled a case with the U.S. government over the fact that they had smuggled artifacts into the United States. These were about 3,000 cuneiform tablets and ancient clay seals, um, probably looted from Iraq since the 1990s. So they had bought thousands of these artifacts and tried to bring them into the United States under the customs label handmade tile samples or something, which made it sound like they were destined for the Hobby Lobby craft stores when really they were priceless 5,000-year-old artifacts. That was a huge deal. I mean, scholars are were livid about this, and it's widely believed that it's not just these items that were problematic. In the Green Collection, it's many more items that the U.S. government doesn't know about or didn't investigate. And the reason that this is troubling is not only that, you know, if you're an archaeologist, Everything you learn about an artifact comes from its context, where it was dug up. Was it in a house? Was it in a factory? Was it a high-quality artifact? Was it not high-quality? Like, you you can tell so much stuff from what's around an artifact, and having when you buy it from the market, it has none of that information. And also, you know, the more you legitimize unprovenance artifacts by buying them and also by studying them and increasing their value, 
the more appealing and lucrative looting becomes. So, you know, it's just this sort of vicious cycle of encouraging looting. So that was where scholars are very concerned about this provenance issue. And I should say that this is a issue that many museums have. Many mm -hmm. things in some of the most renowned museums in the world come from extremely problematic contexts, and many museums are having to return artifacts to their countries of origin in recent years. The difference here is that this all happened in the last, I don't know, five to seven years, not in the last 200 years, you know, right, so all the, right. all the relevant laws were firmly in place when Hobby Lobby started buying artifacts. And this is all about things that are probably real. They just don't have the background that you would want them to. There is also concern about fake materials that have made their way into the collection. This comes up mostly with the museum's collection of Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, Dead Sea Scrolls were a really important archaeological find in the mid-20th century. They contain some of the earliest versions of biblical passages that we know of. They also contained a lot of other philosophical and religious writings that aren't in the Bible and nobody really knew about before, which was super interesting. Not all of these scrolls were excavated by archaeologists, and most of them eventually ended up being sold on the market. All the scrolls were thought to be published by around 2001. But in 2002, some previously unknown scrolls fragments began making their way onto the antiquities market, and the Greens have bought 13 of them. Some of them, the text seems to sort of follow the contours of the fragment of parchment itself, which suggests that maybe it was written on that fragment after it was broken. There's even one that has a Greek letter alpha in an otherwise Hebrew text, and it is exactly where that letter alpha appears as an annotation for a footnote in an edition of the Hebrew Bible. So, you know, there are some very troubling issues with, the, with these Dead Sea Scrolls. There's some tests you can do. They're waiting for those tests, and the way that they say they're displaying them in the museum is to display the ones that scholars are more sure about as legitimate Dead Sea Scrolls, and then displaying some of the ones that scholars think are probably not authentic with an explanation of how you forge a text, why you'd want to, how scholars figure out if things are a forgery. You know, not, nothing was in place when I visited the museum. It was still too early to see the artifacts or really the finalized versions of the, of the displays. But from from what I heard from them, that seemed like actually quite a responsible way to address the issue of forgery. What were your impressions of visiting this place? Did you feel like you were in a museum? I brought a scholar with me, Christopher Ralston, and in talking to him after, you know, we felt that it was clear that scholars' worst fears were not going to come true about this museum. You know, they had addressed forgery pretty responsibly. They do seem to have instituted measures to keep the most problematically provenanced artifacts out of at least public display. We didn't see any signs that they would be actively promoting an evangelical view of the Bible or sort of suppressing scholarly evidence to the contrary. But what it did seem like was that this was a pretty shallow exploration of what are very contentious and deep scholarly issues. You know, it's like the ancient Near East and the Bible is incredibly important for so many people for various reasons, you know, religious and not. And the scholarly discussion around them is incredibly profound and complex. And the museum, it seemed to skate by with the most shallow explanation of that possible. And I think you can argue, as the museum does, that actually provides sort of an open door to people who may not be interested or might be put off by 
more intellectual or scholarly approaches to these topics. But, you know, I don't think scholars are going to be particularly pleased with it. Okay. Lizzie, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for science based in Mexico City. She writes about the Museum of the Bible this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.